Welcome to the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, where the principles of person-centered care come alive. This month, members of the LGBTQ community join Ann Garten for a discussion about health equity among LGBTQ patients and how providers can be more inclusive. Welcome to the IPCC podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Person-Centered Care in collaboration with KALAFM. I am Ann Garten, director of the Institute here at St. Ambrose University, and will be your host for today's podcast. Today, I'm happy to introduce to you, our listeners, um, Sarah Stevens and Lauren Gill-Hayes from the Project of the Quad Cities. Welcome. Thanks, Ann. Sarah. Would you start a little bit by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Sarah Stevens, the Community Impact Officer at the Project of the Quad Cities. I um, am new to this role at, at the project. I've been here six weeks, I think, at this point. But I'm not new to the work of the Project of the Quad Cities. I've been close to and supportive of their work in different capacities for the last decade. I come from corporate healthcare professionally. I've had some time in nonprofit, and I'm also a member of the LGBTQ community. Excellent. Thanks yeah. for coming. You bet. Lauren, how about yourself? Hi, my name is Lauren Gill-Hayes, and I work as the Director of Supportive Services at the Project of the Quad Cities, which largely stewards the support and care of people living with HIV in the Quad City area and kind of beyond. Sometimes they find their way to us, too. Um, I have been in my role for a little over a year, 14 months, and I'm a relatively new resident of the community as well. well. Welcome. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, And... Really, our ultimate goal is ending HIV through whatever means that is possible. And we realize that equity has to be on the table to do so. And I am also a member of the LGBTQ community here in the Quad Cities. Great to have you. So speaking of that, so HIV, boy, I was in college when that started to come out, right? And so it's been a few years, and we've had a lot of data from national and international systems highlight the need for more understanding of health and health equity within the LGBTQ plus population, right? Um, And this population continues to experience worse health outcomes than their heterosexual counterparts. Let's talk about why. Why is that? Sarah, you want to start? Sure. I think the first piece to tease out here that I think is pretty critical is that um, people living with HIV, I think it's important to not conflate LGBTQ health equity with um, HIV and health equity in that realm as well, right? So um, there's overlap between the populations, but they are not mutually exclusive belonging to each other. So that's the first piece. So if we're talking about the broader scope of LGBTQ healthcare and health equity and outcomes. At the core, I think anytime you're talking about um, skewed outcomes, uh, you have to take a look at bias as the core, right? Because from bias, you know, we we like to think that our bias is just an opinion, um, one direction or the other, but that's short-sighted. Our bias then becomes our lived reality. We speak it into existence and policy, procedure, structure, and then we end up with less favorable health outcomes for marginalized populations. And I think that is pretty clearly true. I think it was grossly true in the 80s. I think it's impossible to look back and not see that today. Um, the way that we responded to the AIDS crisis is horrific, right? But we also see that same sort of microcosm played out uh, in LGBTQ care in general. And I think the core of it really is bias. It's bias and stigma. So stigma created from bias. 
Indeed. So where do you see what areas of concern specifically um, for this community? Are we needing to focus and, and, and gain that momentum to improve on that, right? I think I, if you don't mind, I want to toss that to Lauren. Yeah, certainly. Um, because Lauren is in, um, Lauren is serving people every day who have the lived experience, uh, maybe differently than I do, truly. So I want to toss that to Lauren and see Excellent. if she can add. Can I have that one more time? Yeah. So uh, let's let's take that concern, that bias, and and we know that impacts that community, right? And how should we, as health and human services, start tur turning the table and and turning that focus so that we become more equitable and and um, in in serving this population? Okay. So I think to Sarah's point as well about we start with bias. I think that shows up in the work we do too. And it has to be kind of the foremost understood um, pathway for all providers, whether it's from the licensed social work perspective um, onto the phlebotomist that's pulling your blood at a draw for your six-month HIV lab, right? So if we are not modeling also what we aim to see, if we're not modeling the level of comfort, the level of safety, if we're not modeling vulnerability at our times of mistake making, um, the idea that our our constituents, our clients, our patients will be open to sharing those aspects of their life with us so that we can mitigate any harm that would be disproportionately set, saddled with them is probably the, the primary starting point. Mm -hmm. How do we showcase that in and of ourselves? How do we get the right butts in the right seats to make sure that we are providing standardized care across the board outward? And then from there, I think it has to do with making sure that everything we create is touching upon every opportunity for conversation. So if an intake, if at an intake, I'm not asking you your pronouns, or if I'm not talking to you about your sexuality, who you have sex with, not specifically maybe how you identify as bisexual or heterosexual, but I'm not, if I'm not asking those deeper dive questions, there are so many things that you'll, you might assume are not on the table for me to ever engage with you on. And I think that there's sometimes a trend towards that in social services that we are filling out a form. We are getting this piece done so that I can check the box and we can make the resource happen. And I think what gets lost there is relationship building. And from the social work perspective, um, the one thing that they'll say research over and over again, evidence points to, is that 70%, maybe even more at this point, of the outcomes in a social service environment and health and human services is related to relationship and rapport. So if we're not even building that foundation, we're not going to see the outcomes to actually ending HIV because without that relationship, there's just no opportunity for furthered care, for intentional care, for equitable care, for insight. Well, and I think even beyond HIV, like what you said, Sarah, right? Because we know that in general, this population has lower um, health outcomes, mm -hmm. right? Both physical and mental. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we also need to talk, and this is going to be another podcast someday, right? Is is we, uh, you in social work, myself in nursing, we based our practices on cultural competencies, right? And we got to turn that table a little bit in cultural humility, because I may not always understand as a heterosexual person your specific needs, but I can build that relationship and ask you, what is it that you need? Right. And that goes back to the point of comfort of the provider. I was thinking as you were talking, we, we just recently completed uh, a safe zone training in a local clinic, which was a really good start to open that conversation. And so much of a safe zone training is about providing the language and the education 
uh, to be able to engage in a basic conversation that isn't that I'm not skirting uh, words, that I'm able to just be direct in my communication with you because as we know, most of um, most of our relationship is built non-verbally. And so if I sense in a provider, to this day if I sense in a provider discomfort um, when they realize I have a wife and not a husband, it changes my ability to be transparent with them about everything, right? The way we do anything is the way we do everything. And so if I'm sitting in this transaction with you and I sense that you are either uncomfortable or judgmental or any of the things that come with that, then I'm probably not going to tell you also about this pain I have in my ribs or the fact that I can't be compliant with my meds because of certain social factors, right? It requires trust to be able to move us toward better health outcomes. And there's not a lot of it now, right? Right. Yeah, and I think that's the piece that um, I, I have reflected on a little bit is how do I build that cultural competence? I have lots of friends in the LGBTQ plus population, right? Yeah. Um, and and so how do I uh, uh, just change a few things a little differently in my practice that will make them feel more welcoming in, in that environment? And not that, and I, I have no judgment on that, so I want to make that clear, but but those of us, of us who might, how do you, again, take that bias away so that you can um, be able to hear what that rib pain is or, or what have you? When I teach about bias, anytime I teach about bias, the thing I want most people to know is you'll probably never out uproot it in totality. So what, what I try to do instead, because we all carry bias, implicit or explicit, it's impossible not to. So the first piece is, I think, engage with yourself in a way that allows some sense of grace and forgiveness, right? Then the second piece is be aware of what you're likely storing implicitly. And then when you approach interactions, particularly with people who belong to a community that you're aware you're holding some implicit bias, you just become conscious the way you're conscious when you don't know how to travel to a certain place, you pay attention to the road signs, right? So our willingness to be attentive to the person so that I can stay in relationship is critical, I think. Indeed, indeed. Let's move forward a little bit and talk about what disparities this population face uh, across the lifespan. Because, uh, you know, we have an elder population who have specific needs. We have a younger generation that has specific needs. Lauren, you want to take that one? Yeah, I think where we have to first start is where we are in this moment of history. So it is June 1st, 2021, and we are this week approaching the 40th anniversary of the CDC kind of naming and claiming AIDS as a disease state, right? So still very young because 40 years ago isn't when the first case happened. It's just it was called gay cancer then, right? So we have to really think about how society has also shifted um, in that regard before we can even kind of start thinking about those subpopulations and how we can approach to really offer quality care, equitable care to the best of our capacity. But with that, right, with those 40 years in mind, the 22-year-old that walks through our door um, as a newly diagnosed person living with HIV does have a completely confoundingly different viewpoint and understanding of the disease as someone who is 63. Um, and actually, at this point, the majority of our clients who are enrolled in case management care are moving towards old age. We are seeing that pretty profound blessing of people living to old age with HIV, which is something that didn't seem like a possibility. And with that, we do have to think of so much. So I'll start there. I'll start with our elders. So our elders, um, as you know, if you are Medicare 
eligible or if you're familiar with the Medicare system, there are different parts of Medicare, right? One of the most personalized parts of Medicare that might seem innocuous to most or might just seem to be rooted in what kind of discount can I get on my meds is Part D, right? So the Part D section of Medicare allocates funding towards medications. Our clients don't necessarily feel comfortable sitting in front of someone who is there to counsel them on SHIP um, to pick out their plan because they know they will immediately out themselves as soon as they say, Genvoya, right? So there's this hesitance and even skepticism of even interacting with those natural benefits at your local community elder center because what does that mean for my health if I walk into that place? Am I coming out of the closet as a result? Am I outing my status? Am I doing both, right? So that's where we have to primarily think of what kind of benefit allocation systems when we're thinking about long-term federal benefits, survivors' benefits, if folks weren't married in time or if they were, huge component. We've had a lot of folks, partners of 30, 40 plus years pass away and there were no benefits as a survivor that they had access to or were going to the state against. So we're even seeing that in terms of security and how that all ripples into healthcare and effects. We're seeing so much of in, in the cross-sectional, intersectional relationships. So many folks newly diagnosed with HIV are also people of color. Um, so I can go back to Sarah's point about just different standards in care, noticing something or, or noticing a bias emerge in a room and then saying, well, I'm not going to talk to you about my pain because you're, you can't even handle my wife. Right. So we see that with clients that even if they do go to a provider, we know the documentation tells us, the evidence tells us if you are a black woman presenting with pain in the ER, you are going to be treated differently than a white man presenting with pain in the very same ER. So our clients have that compounding factor. And then for our younger folks, this disease just doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to them. Mm -hmm. So to some, they're like, OK, this is maybe like another STI. This is treatable. This is movable. To some, it feels like a death sentence because in their community, they may have not talked about HIV in a real way in many years because it's it's not the same condition it once was. You can take a daily medication and thrive, truly. So I think we see a lot of ripple effects depending on the pocket of the community because this is such an intersectional disease for LGBTQ folks, folks of color, trans folks are disproportionately affected by HIV. Um, folks who use injection drugs, which can also be part of a lifestyle that's naturally wrapped into those places of care. Um, yeah, we just, we tend to catch a lot of folks at many intersections of life that put them at disproportionate risk for not being treated well or being actively harmed. Right. And we also see increased cancer. We can see increased suicide rates. Um, what else? Well, that speaks, that speaks deeply to Really, I was going to connect back through the social determinants of health too, and the ways, the ways in which that impacts here. Right, so we're not just necessarily talking. I think it's, and you do this quite a bit here, so this is not like a new topic. But to look at the the service delivery um, in a vacuum is just absurd at this point, right? So, so here we're talking about, um, you know, if you want to take the suicide rate, well, let's circle it back to. The, the reality of bias and stigma and what that's like from the moment you realize that you aren't like everybody else, right? And then the ability to be safe in places, truly physically safe in places. We were just talking about this as well recently. I didn't realize how often I assess a group of people 
for safety before I acknowledge that my wife is my wife, right? It is subconscious at this point, but the idea that that isn't having some impact on both my mental and physiological health Mm -hmm. is also absurd. Well, I think of, I think of our podcast we did on weathering with our African-American community and, and really my new research project needs to be weathering on, you know, all of our marginalized populations, uh, because what is impacting, uh, your physical health with inflammation and, and those types of things because of the stress. And, Epigenetics. And, yep, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, now don't, I finish my DNP next week, ladies. I am not <laughs> going back, but in the future That's work. the next project. <laughs> That's yeah. the next project. Got it. Right, Got it. right. Traumatic legacy. So how do we work on improving? What barriers do we need to overcome? I think we talked about bias, right? We, we talk about relationship building. You know, what else do you see uh, research-wise? Or, or, you know, for some of us, I say the research there. What are we doing about the research? So what do you, what do you all think on that? Mm. It's always so hard for me, too, when I'm being inside of the community I do want to say this. I think I I think that in many ways the onus of what do we do about it should start with the people who are in a position of power to do something about it. So I have a hard time when people toss this question back to me as part of the community. And not because I'm unwilling to answer, but because I don't even necessarily know the gap in between my experience and your experience. Right. But I've found often, because I've had this experience with race, I'm a white woman, I see the gap because I know what what my lived experience is, that when I look at a person of color and their lived experience, I see what's in between the two of us, right? And so I don't know for sure that I have the answer. I know that you said research, and and so that did appeal to me, but you said there is already research there, right? So then what are we doing about it? Um, My hope is that at the project, we continue to do something about it on the scale that we're able to do something about it. And that means adopting a health equity lens, a person-centered lens at every point of care in the continuum and seeing how that changes outcomes for people. Because I think if we knew how to change outcomes, we would do it, I would hope, maybe. I don't know for sure. Um, But I think that that's where we start by treating people as people. Lauren, do you have more there? Yeah, I think one thing that anybody listening to this can do or one thing that any person can start with is – Pushing apart, pulling apart, picking apart stigma. I think that's the easiest kind of point of entry because stigma, right, begets shame. Shame begets behavior, either moving away from systems or in interacting with or taking part in behaviors that then might further self-harm an individual as a coping skill. Right. So I think an easy place to start with stigma, and this is something I noticed in my own family. So I grew up with a parent who died of AIDS-related causes. Um, I did not know of his AIDS status until four years after he died. It was a big open secret in my family, but I could tell you, I could walk you through the time when my dad got a cut in the swimming pool and everybody got out. And so I have a very visceral memory of this, but no, I didn't have any context for it until later. And I think that even just bearing witness to that and kind of making that my own point in my own process for social work has been important to me. How do we break apart that stigma? I had to, I had to dismantle it in my own family in a generation. But I think that's where we all start to in terms of HIV care, right? People live well with HIV. Right, right. I can't tell you how many times they sit with a client after they've been newly diagnosed and their biggest fear is... I'm afraid if I tell my family, they won't let me hug my grandkid anymore. Mm. Or they won't let me use their bathroom the next time I come over for the holiday meal. Right? So I think that's the place that we can start. What do we know? What do we need to know? 
what's our expected baseline of knowledge about HIV specifically as a human population? What we do need to know is people are safer than ever. People are living longer than ever. You can deeply love, you can even be in relationship with someone with HIV in a romantic or sexual relationship. The medications that we have now are so powerful that someone can be untransmittable. They can live with HIV, you could give them a blood test, you wouldn't know the difference, right? So I think I speak to that from like the HIV bucket. What it, it's all of our responsibility equally to know the bare minimum we can to advocate for and break the stigma around HIV. And then I just think it's a similar um, methodology for our LGBTQ plus folks in general too. As a bare minimum population, where do we show up in, in our advocacy pants? Where do we show up dismantling stigma? I mean, I can just think about in the wake of marriage equality, just how fast, how like the clip has been pretty steady. It is not perfect, but just the conversation mm -hmm. around coming out now versus 20 years ago feels a lot different, feels a lot different. So I just can't help but be excited about that, but then keep encouraging folks who may not have skin in the game on this front to break apart any stigma or shame-inducing rhetoric and language that shows up. I think that's our, our most base responsibility. I think, too, we have an instinct to want to go, beyond stigma, what can we do? And the, and the answer is, no, don't move away from the discomfort of, of understanding the impact of stigma. That's the answer. And then go hunting for it in processes, systems, structures, yeah. and then make it your work to dismantle it there, yeah. right? So I, I understand the, the desire, because we all have it, to go, but what bigger thing can we do? And right. the answer That's is, enough. that is the big thing. <laughs> well, it, thing. it's interesting Having that you say that, Sarah, because yeah. I literally was going to go there. Oh, good. Knowing that my peers would go there, right? Yeah. And you did it for me beautifully. Okay. So thank you. I, I really, I, it, it, that was perfect. Because I also think about how can I, in my practice, go beyond um, cultural competence and go to cultural humility and how because I'm not going to understand everybody else's lived experience you're not going to understand all mine right but I can be person-centered in my delivery by building a relationship understanding that I may not understand all of your lived pieces but I can listen mm -hmm. I can ask about those things that you need and you value yep. And how do we move forward to reach your health and wellness goals? Exactly. Yeah. I think I think that really pulls it together um, in, in that closing. Because I was going to ask, you know, we, we talked, we've gone through a lot of different waves through here in this conversation. And we could talk about what's the community looking for in a provider. Just exactly what we talked about. Yeah. Look at your own biases. Create that cultural humility. Ask that individual their needs, goals, so on and so forth. So. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining me. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Um, before we go, Sarah, do you want to take on, just share a snippet with our local people on what is it that the project is working on here locally that they may, that they don't know, that the other people in other parts sure. of the community don't know about? Well, I think that people generally know, when they know the project, they know about the HIV AIDS piece right. of of what the project does, which is case management which Correct. is which sounds really sterile it's not it's it's linkage to care basically right so people know about that in general but i think the pieces that people don't necessarily know that have expanded over the last 2 to 3 years um, that we have a comprehensive sti clinic hepsi um, which is that's a that's a huge addition in the last year i think I don't know, I've only been here for six weeks. So um, <laughs> uh, mental health services, and then we've expanded into LGBTQ primary care in a relationship with CHC. So that's really exciting. Um, and that's still developing in the sense that um, 
we are really trying to get the word out to the community that this is now available to them to grow uh, demand and access um, for LGBTQ primary care, but we're just getting started there. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks again for both of you for joining us and for our listeners for listening. You can learn more about us at the Institute by connecting with us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like a specific person-centered discussion to come about, please reach out. We'll be posting that question on both uh, Facebook and Twitter. We'd love to hear from our listeners what you want to learn more about. Um, And brought to you again by St. Ambrose Institute for Person-Centered Care and KALAFM. The Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast is produced at KALAFM Studios in Davenport, Iowa. This show is engineered by Dave Baker and produced by Ann Garten, Director of the Institute for Person-Centered Care and Nursing Faculty at St. Ambrose University.